Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1373, Hebrews chapter 2. We'll, be, we'll read the entire chapter. Our text will come this morning, especially from verses 14 through 16, and this afternoon from 17 uh, through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, we're reminded of things that were set before us in in this chapter as we read it uh, in the past weeks already. Uh, First of all, the the necessity to give the more earnest heed to the great salvation and not neglect that great salvation that is witnessed by the Lord in His Word and also especially through His Son. As we see the necessity of the incarnation through the quote from Psalm 8, what is man, that you are mindful of him and how all things were made to be put under his feet, but we do not yet see all things put under him. And, and then we recognize that we see Jesus and the real necessity of the incarnation. And we saw the purpose of this incarnation as he took upon himself our flesh to bring many sons into glory as he becomes like us and, and his brethren. Today we'll hear about the comfort of the incarnation. But let us hear this as we read again Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will? For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that was not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death 
he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word and add his blessing on the proclamation of it as well. Dear congregation, if we had to look again at verses 14 through 16 where we find these words, insomuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise also shared in the same. And we recognize that that statement there is showing the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ with his people, especially as we also have partaken of flesh and blood. He likewise also took upon himself what he was not in the incarnation. He became flesh of our flesh. But notice what our passage is doing. Our passage is reaffirming this truth that has been set forth before us throughout Hebrews chapter 2 and showing us the very comfort of it. It's almost like our catechism saying, what is your comfort that you receive from such and such a truth or a doctrine? And the author to Hebrews is doing the very same thing here. He says, in so much as this, therefore, this is what he has done. And we find that especially in verse 14 and then also in verse 17. The the word that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And then we find also in verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. We'll deal with that this afternoon, and for this morning we want to confine ourselves to verses 14 through 16 with the comfort of Christ's incarnation. And there's really one word that describes the comfort that we receive from the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that word is liberty, liberty. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts that. We who were under the power of the fear of death, subject to bondage, he's come to release us from that bondage and to give liberty to those who were in him. When we think of the word liberty, we think of slaves. Slaves who are bound to their master. We think of, we think of the opposite of liberty in that way, but also in way of bondage to addictions, a bondage of living in an abusive relationship, bondage of living under a tyrannical government, or bondage of one country exerting power and control over another country. And our minds go uh, to World War I and World War II, and fortunately we don't live in such times under a control of Nazi Germany. But unfortunately, we don't always remember the history and the stories of our European grandparents and great-grandparents 
who did live under it, and some who fought for it, and others who, who gave their lives for it. Maybe some of our grandparents, brothers, and fathers who fought and gave their lives to liberate those who were daily living in fear. Daily recognizing that they had to surrender all of their possessions to, to Hitler and to struggle day by day to find enough food to satisfy their daily needs. Maybe we, we just had it too good in our lifetime to understand the real value and meaning of what liberty means. Maybe we have experienced the comforts of liberty and now take them for granted. And I'm not trying to make any kind of political point here at all, but I'm, 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 I'm saying it in this regard, that we need to remember history. And, and we do so as a nation in Canada. On November 11, we, we think of the anniversary of Armistice, and we think of the agreement that was made at the end of first, the First World War. We, we remember on June 6, D-Day, and... and and, and we remember these things, and, and we're called to remember them, to value our freedoms in a civilized and order, ordered society. And my point in it is all of this. We don't just remember the liberties that we receive in, in a, as people and individuals and nations and so on, but we remember especially the liberty that God gives through His great salvation, through the great liberator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us today to do this, the Lord's Supper, in remembrance of me. And if we don't, we will soon forget. One of the sayings on November 11 is, lest we forget. And we know the history of that in the Bible, don't we? We know about the Israelites, Israelites who were sold into to bondage, the bondage of Egypt. And, and God gives deliverance and liberates them through the hand of Moses. And, and not only weeks later, they're forgetting, lest they forget. And they did forget. And began to complain and to murmur with a sense of entitlement. So often we're so similar, aren't we? And as we remember the redemptive works of our Lord Jesus Christ year after year, and especially also in the Lord's Supper, we have great reason to remember, lest we forget that Jesus Christ came to die, to liberate, to liberate us from the bondage of death. That's the liberty that we want to look at today. And as we read these words, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, we have a summary of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have an answer for the question, why did Jesus come into this world? He came to die. That He might overthrow Satan's dominion and set His captive people free from death and the dominion of Satan. 
that through his death, he might put death to death. The reality of death is set before us every single day. If you want to look at the newspaper, you want to look at the news, you want to see it in your own families, in your own lives, the reality of death is set before us every day as an inevitable enemy we all have to face. Even a believer, the last enemy is death, says Paul. The reality of death is all around us, and we know the reality of that as we hear the promise of God in Genesis 2 when He created all things, that if we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. In dying, you will die. And ever since, since the fall in Adam, when, when Adam ate of that fruit of that tree, we have witnessed that promise coming true all around us. And Satan uses it to bring us into bondage, the bondage of death. One commentator comments on the hopelessness of death. He said, the hopeless subjection to death characterizes earthly existence apart from the intervention of God. The presence of death produces anxiety and fear. The fear of death is something we all face. And sometimes it's not necessarily only a fear of death, but it's a, it's a fear of living this life under the bondage of death that creates so much anxiety and struggle. It's a reality all around us. And this reality is set forth as a, as a cosmic struggle that's all behind it, the struggle between Satan and God. We find that in Genesis 3 as Satan comes into the garden and wants to pervert and tempt and destroy God's good creation. You can read of it in Revelation 12 as well about this cosmic battle as Satan's there to seek to swallow up Adam but also the Lord Jesus Christ even in his birth. Because the devil, he's been given this power of death. That's what our text says. The devil has the power of death. What does that that mean? Well, it means that he's the prince of this world and he's come to destroy this world and he's to do it through the powerful seduction of sin which brings death in itself. And so Satan comes into this world like a disease causing sin and death to spread through his influence. When we think of power here, we, we don't think of some kind of a deity that has power, an equal to God that has power. No, we think of a power that he has as, as we would say that cancer. Cancer is a powerful enemy. We all know people who have had cancer and how, how weak they become and, and it just depletes them of their strength. It's, it's stronger than them and, and, it, and they die from it many times. Satan's like that kind of power, cancer, that eats at us and gnaws at us and brings us into bondage, depletes us of strength. And his greatest power is that of deception. 
And we should never forget that as as confessing Christians. We need to take the devil seriously because he is an enemy of God and he is an enemy of his people. And and he goes about like a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible calls him a liar, a deceiver, a destroyer, a tempter. That's who the devil is and we need to expose him for who he is. He's opposed to God in all things. And he wants to deceive us into following him. And he does so in such subtle ways. He maybe even deceives you and me as we sit comfortably in church. Came across a question this week that provoked a lot of thought in my mind. What would a city look like that was completely ruled by the devil? What would be your answer? What would a city look like that was completely ruled by the devil? We could think, oh man, there's going to be all kinds of sin and all kinds of chaos and confusion and everything else, right? I don't know that the devil would actually use that tactic. The answer that really got me thinking was this. This commentator said that the city completely ruled by Satan might look different than what we imagine. He would say every lawn would be mowed and every bridge would be clean from graffiti. No one would drive over the speed limit. Children would be obedient to parents. Marriages would remain intact. Every church would have a beautiful building. Maybe not what you expected to hear about a city ruled by Satan. But one thing for sure in the city that's ruled by Satan, the gospel would not be preached in any place, in any home, or from any pulpit. Because the devil's ambition is to prevent the gospel from being preached. It's to keep people from believing the gospel and truly Repenting from their sins. I hope that's not what we see in our church. In our community. But we need to recognize the overwhelming power of the devil from a human side. We need to understand his destruction, his deception. And when we see it, call it for what it is. But don't despair, but rather, just like earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, when we don't see all things put under Jesus' feet yet, or all under men's feet yet, we see Jesus. Because he has come to destroy the devil. He has come and he has taken upon himself our flesh and blood to deliver us from the bondage of death and to destroy the one who has the power of death. To destroy the devil himself. Isn't that already promised in the paradise? In Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Glorious first uh, promise that God had given to Adam and to Eve. 
He says unto them in verse 14 and 15. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's he saying? Yes, there will be this cosmic battle. There will be this this enmity between you and the woman. That is, the serpent, the devil, and the woman. And she's going to have a seed. And that seed is going to come. And it's going to crush your head, Satan. Yes, you might be able to bite at his heel. Bruise it a little bit. But he will crush your head. Jesus Christ, the promised seed, has come to destroy the devil. Satan is ultimately no match for God. They are not equals. And the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the ascension into heaven of our Lord Jesus Christ testifies of this very truth. Satan is defeated. Satan is crushed. The destroyer is destroyed. And when we don't see yet all things put under Jesus' feet, in in, in, in our society and in our own hearts and lives, we can look again and remember His promise that He's coming again. And on that day, He will come and victory will be fully realized and witnessed by every living soul. Every soul will know His victory. And those who are in Christ will live with Him forever. And those who are under the bondage of Satan will perish forever and in the eternal bondage of death. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because by faith, when we see Jesus, He delivers us from the bondage of death. He delivers us from from the fear of death. Everywhere we go, we see the fear of death. We see it in men and women's, boys and girls' faces day by day. We see it in their actions, don't we? Sometimes it's through busyness or the frenzy of entertainment or or whatever it would be to distract from the reality of our mortality, the reality of death. But Jesus has come to solve that great problem for His people. He's come to save His people from their sins and the consequence of death. And even after that, Satan comes with this rod and this power of of death. And he uses it as a way to goad us and to laugh at us. And every time he witnesses death, there's a certain glee in his existence. The bondage of the fear of death. But we see Jesus, who delivers us from death, who abolishes death as we find in 2 Timothy 1 and brings forth life and immortality. You see, Jesus is the champion, the liberator, 
And he comes from heaven to live among us as flesh and blood to defeat once and for all the worst foe of all, the worst oppressor of all, Satan and death. Are we held in bondage by this oppression of death? Death's reality. And yes, we must face death. And that will be a reality for even those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But are we freed from the bondage, the chains of that reality? Death is not a pretty thing. It's ugly. But it's certainly a beautiful thing when the saints of God are on their deathbeds and they can surrender their lives into the hands of their Savior and know that He will receive them in life everlasting in the light of His joy. That's why Jesus comes so often in the Word, doesn't He? He says, fear not. Even when John on the island of Patmos in Revelation 1, Jesus comes to him and says, fear not. I have the keys of hell and of the grave. The keys of death. Fear not. Well, how did Jesus come to deliver death and destroy the devil? It's through death. That's what we'll look at as we reflect on the ta- after each table in the Lord's Supper. But before we can celebrate this liberty of the children of God at the Lord's Supper, we must know how we can have this liberty through the liberator and his liberating death as a God-man mediator. How do we receive this liberty? Well, look at verse 16 with me quick, briefly. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Remember, Jesus is superior to angels, but he didn't come as an angel to save angels who fell away, namely Satan, the devil. He came as a man to his people, to save them from their sins, but not the angel's sin. He came for the seed of Abraham specifically. Well, who is the seed of Abraham? Well, the seed of Abraham sometimes is referred to as Jesus Christ himself, as the one who was the promised one, the promised seed. But he didn't come to give aid to himself. That wouldn't make any sense. The seed of Abraham is also called the Jews from time to time in the Scriptures. But he didn't come only for the Jews. We know that from Hebrews, but also from all of Scripture. And even though he's speaking to people who had come out of the Jewish faith and who were confronted with errors of Judaism, he's not only speaking to the seed of Abraham. We need to have a New Testament understanding of the seed of Abraham. That Abraham, 
Just as he believed in God and his faith was counted as righteousness before God, so we too who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are justified not by our works, not by experiences, not by anything else, but then the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Abraham is the father of all who would believe, we find in Romans 4. And so when we find in Galatians 3 that if we belong to Jesus Christ, we are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise. And so the seed of Abraham are all those who have been liberated and enjoy the liberty of the children of God by spirit-worked faith in their lives. Those that are the called, yes, even commanded by our God, our Lord, to do this in remembrance of Him. Those who have been liberated, set free from the bondage of sin, the bondage of Satan, and the bondage of the world, who know that life, who have experienced the greatest liberty anyone could ever have imagined in all of history. And I want to conclude with a couple questions. What would you think about someone disrespecting those who gave their life for our country? Who disrespected a Remembrance Day ceremony? Who disrespected our veterans and history? What would you think of that person? You'd say, that's terrible. That's despicable. Maybe I can ask a follow-up question. Who would disrespect a God-man who came from heaven to give himself for us as a liberator and not to believe him and not to trust in him and not to turn away from our sinfulness and to do this in remembrance of him? The second question, what would you think about someone who didn't do anything for your liberty and yet wanted to take full credit for that liberty? Well, we don't need to remember those who died in World War I or World War II or in any other wars to give us and preserve this liberty. Because I can keep my own liberty. And we disrespect them. And we say, well, it's all about me. I'm going to take credit for my own liberty. Well, see, isn't that what we say? When maybe we looked at ourselves in this past week and say, well, maybe I haven't repented enough. Maybe I haven't experienced enough. Is it because you selfishly want to take credit for that liberty you hope to enjoy? But let us not also be said that we call ourselves children of Abraham, sons and daughters of God, while all the time knowing that we are completely enslaved to the devil and under the bondage of death. Because today is not a day of celebration for the devil. 
Today is not a day of celebration for His children either. No, it's a day of death. It's a day of defeat for Satan and his angels. But for you, you are still in the day of grace. And today you hear the Gospel call to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to repent from your sins. Today you are hearing that Gospel call when it comes to you through His Word and you witness the comforting liberty of the Gospel. May you turn in repentance and faith to the One who is the liberator and gives liberty in life and in death, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us by faith see the great liberty that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross by celebrating the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. Maybe we ask ourselves exactly how How can Jesus bring reconciliation between God and man as the God-man? We find our answer maybe further in our text here in Hebrews 2, which we hope to meditate on this afternoon through this word, propitiation. Propitiation. I'd like to turn to 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This word, propitiation. It's a recurring word in Scripture that is a a big word. As catechism students, you also remember Meditating on that word in this past week in catechism class. But the word propitiation is a word that we shouldn't lose the value of. Because this is exactly what has happened on the cross. Where Jesus Christ became the sacrifice to make payment to God for our sins. There he took upon himself and heaped upon himself all our sins sins. And there on the cross, the wrath of God, instead of being poured out on us, is poured out on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, instead of pouring out that wrath on us, He turns His wrath and He pours it out on His Son. And there in His Son, is satisfied the justice of God so that he might be the just one and the justifier of those who come to him in faith. Because his justice is satisfied. But it came through death. The broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice. Not the sacrifice of an animal. Not the sacrifice of an angel but the sacrifice of the God-man, the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Dear congregation, or maybe our catechism students know the other word that goes along with how Christ has satisfied for all of our sins and, and, and deals with them and all the consequences of sin. 
And the word is not this time propitiation, but expiation. Expiation. We find that in Hebrews 13, but also especially Leviticus 16, and I'll draw the connection. Hebrews 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. It's like on an exit sign. It's outside, out, outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. In order for sin to be dealt with, It not only needs to be paid for, but it needs to be taken away. As we find Micah buried in a sea of utter forgetfulness. Gone. A beautiful picture of that was in the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, where the priest would make sacrifices and take upon himself the sins of the people in way of confession and place those sins on a scapegoat. They were transferred, as the picture is showing that the sins are being transferred through that high priestly work onto the scapegoat. And that scapegoat would be led out of the camp into the wilderness to never come back to die there. And so the Lord Jesus Christ takes upon himself the sins of all his people. He goes outside by himself with no others to help. All have fled from him. And there, on the cross of Calvary, does business with God on our behalf so that they're dealt with once and for all, his people. It's no wonder in our Lord's Supper form we have Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercies. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west. That far. That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. Done gone forever. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Let's go outside the camp bearing his reproach. Let us sing Psalter 53, stanza 5. Let's pray. 
O merciful God and Father, we come before you with humble and hearty thanksgiving for your boundless mercy that you have shown unto us in giving us your only begotten Son as our mediator, a sacrifice for our sins, and as our food and drink unto life eternal. We also thank you that you give us a true faith by which we become partakers of these benefits. We have been pleased to institute this supper of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to confirm this faith. You have given your Son for us. You have given him to us and have proclaimed his saving death to the whole world, having signified and sealed the atoning sacrifice of, our, of your Son to us at this table. We ask, O faithful Father, that in this commemoration of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would tend to the daily increase of our faith and saving fellowship with him. You have united us to Christ and each other in the communion of saints. Help us through your Spirit to be witnesses of this good news among our neighbors as we await your Savior's return in glory. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.